0: Hi, this is Steve Harkadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, August 4th, 2011. Our guest is Dr. James Mayfield, the co-founder of Choice Humanitarian. Uh, thanks so much for being here.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Now, I've been calling you, Jim, is that okay? Yes, that's wonderful. I think I've seen you referred to that way. So I appreciate your allowing me that informality. The Future of Education is sponsored by Blackboard. The project I work on for Blackboard is the Collaborate program. It's the environment that we're in. I also run the Learn Central Social Network for Educators. The interview series is also sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project, looking at conversation and participation in education. Coming up, November 2nd and 3rd, our free worldwide Conference on Libraries, Library 2.011, looking at the future of libraries. Sponsored by San Jose State University, it is free two days. We are accepting proposals for presentations right now, so that's library2011.net or .com. And of course, in November, our five-day, 24-hour-a-day virtual conference, the Global Education Conference. Again, that is free. It was a blast last year, over 400 sessions, presentations from 62 countries, 15,000 login attendees. Uh, hope you'll join us November 14th to 18th, globaleducationconference.com. Coming up on the future of education, next week, Doug Rushkoff talks about his book, Program or Reprogrammed, Alan Blankstein on scaling excellence in schools. On the 18th, Jeff Piontek on education change and reform. Bob Compton on the 25th on his new movie called The Finland Phenomenon. For those of you who are interested in why you look at Finland as such an exemplary uh, education system. Uh, Rebecca and Richard Dufour on learning communities. Howard Gardner from Harvard on... Uh, his uh, book, How Children Think. It's the I've got a cover over here. Sorry, the unschooled mind: How Children Think and How Schools Should Teach. Sam Chaltain on his new book, Faces of Learning. Peter Cookson on the Children's Education Bill of Rights, and lots more coming up. If you've missed the session, they are all recorded. Tuesday, we had Jane Nelson and Mary McGuire talking to us about um, Adlerian psychology in education, and Jane's positive discipline. Um, book series. A lot of fun and a lot of neat connections to education. So now for those of you who are here live in the room, we'd like to give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. To the left of the map you'll see some icons one of which is a star. If you click on that star and click on the map, it indicates where you're listening from. You can also shout out in the chat maybe the country, the time, and the temperature. I'm not seeing any stars but my own. And this is a new version of Blackwood coverage, So I'm hoping that you are actually seeing those icons to the left of the map. So all good. So click on the star and click on the map. We know we're in the doldrums of summer. It's early August, uh, often vacation time for people. But it does look like we have New Zealand here, some in the United States. Anyway, thanks for joining us. And if you're listening to the recording, we sure appreciate your taking the time to do so. So Jim, I'm going to do some full disclosure here. Our 18-year-old daughter, Kate Hargadon, is actually in Nepal with CHOICE right now. And I was introduced to CHOICE through Kate's uh, research looking for a gap year program. And I have to tell you that uh, Kate and the Hargadon family fell in love with the CHOICE philosophy. And uh, and my invitation to you comes directly from that. So I'm hoping that you can um, give us a little bit of the history of choice tonight. And I'm going to make a couple of connections. And I want to be kind of explicit about how I do so. The first is that I think there are lessons from your work with regard to self-determination and local solutions that will apply to education. But I'm not going to actually make those connections um, very explicitly tonight. Uh, because I, I want to just have you be able to tell the story of choice. But but for me, that's kind of the, the binding thread here. The second is that you actually discussed um, in your books, at some length, um, uh, actual village community education. And that I think we can be a little bit more direct on. And we did have a woman on the show named Carol Black whose film School in the World has kind of set the stage for some of this conversation. So if it's okay with you... Uh, and I'm sure you have to do this quite a bit, but could you give us a little bit of an overview of how Choice started and sort of the, the progression you've gone through in your thinking about humanitarian work?
1: Yes, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, I assume that my voice is uh, clear. This is a, a sort of a new technology for me, and I, I hope it works well as, uh, as I'm trying to communicate my my, my thoughts. Uh, it really starts back in the fall of 1966 when I arrived in Egypt on a, a Fulbright scholarship. I spent two years uh, looking at villages in Egypt and wrote a dissertation essentially on the local government system uh, and the tremendous difference between what I heard in Cairo about what was happening in villages and what I then experienced over a two-year period and the gap between the the uh, the voices of the central government and the voices of the local villagers, the gap was so huge that I began to realize how difficult it is for people outside of villages to truly understand what's going on. And as a consequence, I since spent the next 40 years, I guess, trying to understand um, more effective ways of uh, helping villagers to solve their own problems. And, and I have to say, the first 20 years of my professional career from, say, the mid-60s to the mid-80s, uh, I was spending most of my time uh, helping central governments develop ministries and central government programs and kind of a top-down approach uh, to education, to health services, uh, to local government systems, and it became apparent to me, at least I was assuming in those early days, that we knew what was best for what was going on in the villages and that uh, the best way to uh, prepare villagers was to train local government and central ministry personnel in management training and implementing and budgeting and and understanding ways of bringing these services to the villages. Um, it was in nineteen seventy nine uh, where I really became aware of the challenge. I was invited uh, to do a research project in uh, a number of uh, in a number of uh, countries, and we were looking at US aid and World bank um, financing of village development programs. And what we discovered was, These were projects implemented between 1965 and 1975 and we were doing an evaluation in 1979. So the latest project was four years old. We discovered that about 80% of all the projects that had been funded uh, were no longer functioning in 1979. And, uh, and the tragedy of that, of course, was that as soon as most of these projects were completed, the local country, the country where the project was implemented, simply did not have the budget, didn't have the capability of maintaining that project. And as a consequence, um, the project itself just died. What was especially interesting to me, however, was not the 80 percent that failed, and were not functioning. I became intrigued by the 20% that were that were sustainable, that were still operating. And a series of principles began to emerge as we did an in-depth study of that of that 20%. And what we found was that when projects are implemented by outsiders, uh, they are almost never I- sustainable. Uh, that uh, big projects of over 50 million dollars were almost never sustainable. Smaller projects, uh, let's say uh, less than 5 million, many of those did seem to survive because they, they seemed to have the resources to maintain that project. And so with that kind of experience, uh, watching failures and, and watching some successes, I realized that uh, after 20 years of working in village development, I had become an expert in what doesn't work. And that's what led to the creation of this organization, Choice Humanitarian. We, we called it Choice um, because we felt we wanted to find a way of allowing the villagers themselves uh, to determine their own future, to determine what their needs were, to uh, prioritize those needs, and to develop their own capacity to uh, leverage and mobilize their own resources develop their own leadership capacity, and essentially choice is based upon that principle. We've we've essentially gone through three three phases uh, very quickly, because I don't want to spend too much time on this. The first phase was the early 80s until the early 90s, and it was essentially a program of projects in which... We would organize expeditions uh, with people paying their own expenses and bringing their own tools and their own expertise. And we would go into a village and build a school or a health clinic or uh, a water system. Uh, and then the next year, we'd go to another village and do the same and then to another village. And this first phase of single villages working on single projects uh, was a nice way uh, for, uh, people from the United States to go into a village and observe their culture and to feel like they were doing something good. The problem, of course, was that you'd go back two or three years later and the school uh, was not being maintained, the health clinic didn't seem to have the medicine they needed, the pump on the water project uh, was not working, and, and I had a, an epiphany uh, in the mid-80s when I visited one of those water projects that we'd put in. And when uh, we realized the pu- the, pu- the pump was not working, I asked the villager, well, uh, the village chief, why is this project not working, in your opinion? And he said, well, we've been waiting for you Americans to come back and fix your pump. That was an epiphany for me personally as I began to realize that uh, going in and doing things for people uh, without helping them to develop their own capacity so that they began to see the project as theirs rather than ours, that very little serious change would happen in villages until we moved away from this sort of paternalistic, uh, almost welfare approach to uh, to village development. And that's when we really shifted to um, trying to develop leadership, trying to develop the capacity of villagers through their village development councils or their committee for health services or their committed to their, com- their local committee for literacy in the community, uh, that's when we began to see significant more sustainable kinds of programming uh, to be developed. Uh, I'll stop there if there's any questions.
0: So Jim, it, um, I, as I read your, I read most of uh, your book, The Time Has Come. And it, it occurred to me as I was reading through it that there are a couple of, uh, sort of human temptations that we face that probably have been involved in humanitarian work. And then I think are, are possibly involved in education change as well. And, and one is the temptation to solve problems for other people uh, rather than allowing mistakes or growth. And the other is the temptation to believe that we know a solution before we really do, and invest time and money and kind of uh, entrench ourselves into a solution that may or may not be working. Did these come into play a lot in humanitarian work?
1: Absolutely it does. Uh, I I cannot tell you the number of programs and activities uh, from a number of NGOs throughout the world, including many of our own government agencies, uh, putting projects into communities uh, with very little attention to the local culture, to the local political situation, to the local tribal and social um, environment in which this program or this project was being uh, implemented. Uh, And it, it was clearly what I would call a service delivery paradigm. We know what's best for the village. We have the technology. We have the resources. We will go in and, and we will help these people, and we treat them like children, and we essentially increase their dependency. Uh, and that, that, was, that was one of the major shifts in my own sense, as we tried to shift from what, what we called a service delivery paradigm to a resource mobilization paradigm, which was based on the assumption that villagers should determine their own needs they should prioritize those needs and then they should learn how to mobilize resources, leverage their own local resources with resources from the government, from other NGOs, from private sector sources, uh, so that over time they essentially learn to do what uh, NGOs have been doing for years and that is learning how to identify sources and uh, and utilize those resources to solve their own problems.
0: So one of the things that uh, keeps coming up in our discussions of education reform is that this sort of deeper way of thinking about uh, the need for self-determination or um, the ability to choose. It, uh, oftentimes remains kind of a secondary narrative. It has a very hard time becoming the primary narrative. Have you seen this change in your work? And, and have there been ways in which you feel like this message has um, been uh, well described and adopted? Are, are there lessons for us and in, in how this is taking place in the humanitarian work? Or do you face the same issue? Um, I
1: have. I have to say that. There are a number of NGOs and a number of
0: agencies
1: that uh, appear to be more sensitive to the issue of sustainability, more sensitive to the issue of positive versus negative consequences for our various interventions, whether it's a new school system or whether it's a new medical system. Uh, there's, there's always unintended consequences uh, for almost any intervention that you can imagine going into a a rural environment. However, there are a number of NGOs that I think have learned the lesson that you don't just go in and do things for people, that you need to work at uh, understanding the local culture, you need to spend a a significant amount of time helping them to develop their own local institutions for decision making and program planning and and project implementation so that they become a part of a process that goes from simply understanding what their problems are to being committed to uh, solving those problems but then and this is the third level that many NGOs don't go to this third level which is ensuring that the villagers have ownership for, for that project for that school program for that for that medical intervention that they themselves have have um, have ownership for that. Uh, um, and and uh, as we get into the discussion of education, uh, I have a number of other ideas that I'd like to share with you at some point.
0: I can't wait. In fact, I've highlighted and underlined quite a bit of that particular chapter. But before we get there, I'm also interested in the role of money. Um, uh-huh. It seems as though uh, Obviously, money is crucial to the effort, but it's almost as though it's the success of programs is inversely proportional to the amount of money being spent. Why is that, and, and what does it tell us about the temptation to um, to spend money?
1: Oh, that, that's a one. That's a. I wish we had a couple of hours to discuss that question because, from my perspective, if if I have, if I have say a million dollars for a project in a, in a given area. I would rather spend a hundred thousand over a ten-year period than try to go in and spend that million dollars in in one year which oftentimes happens people especially government programs will have huge budgets uh, and they and and by legislative uh, mandates they have to spend that money in a one or two year period and there's there's three unintended consequences that come from that the first unintended consequence is that when you pour that kind of money into a, an into an area, there's always the challenge of corruption and misuse of funds. That when you try to spend large amounts of money in a short period of time, there's there's a very common consequence of corruption. Uh, essentially, uh, you 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 essentially create opportunities for misuse of funds or for uh, increasing salaries. Uh, I remember uh, when we were working in the country of Mali, uh, I was the chairman of the board of of choice uh, at that time. And many members of of our board felt that uh, the price, the salaries we were paying to our employees there was much too low. And I tried to explain to them that uh, the typical school teacher was making about $125 a month, and uh, we were, we were. I suggested we pay him say $175, and he was uh, excited for that increase in salary. Was working really hard, and then a number of our board members essentially decided that uh, that was. Uh, that was That was not enough. We should pay him more. And so reluctantly, I agreed that uh, we we could pay him maybe two hundred and and uh, they wanted to go to two fifty. And then finally, a year later, the board essentially said, we need to pay him four hundred dollars a month. And I tried to explain that while four hundred dollars doesn't seem like a lot in the in the United States. That's the salary that the Minister of Education was receiving in that country at that time. Uh, and so there's the temptation to use resources in an inappropriate way. But the other problem is that the whole question of sustainability. It's very easy to build, uh, to spend money on projects and programs that require uh, maintenance costs and require constant replacement of uh, parts and so forth. And if you, if you simply put money into programs without considering maintenance and considering long-term costs of replacement and so forth, uh, large amounts of money simply guarantee that within a year or two the project will fail.
0: Jim, does that money also sometimes come with a, an expectation of results that doesn't necessarily match the nature of how change takes place? Yes.
1: Yes. I I, I see what you're saying there. Um, And I guess you're referring to like a a change in the whole focus, the whole purpose of the project.
0: Well, I think one of the things we see in education is uh, large organizations bringing large amounts of money in. And with that, they bring an expectation of traditional business metrics to measure the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that often isn't actually uh, sort of how things really work.
1: Well, just the, just the whole question about can the community or the district or the, even the, the, the country itself afford to maintain and to continue that project after the outsider's money ends? Uh, it, 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 that's what, for me, that's one of the great tragedies that there's, there has been in the past. I think it's, it's improved a great deal in recent years. But certainly in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, I saw this as a constant problem, just being unable to create a system where the money that was allocated for that project uh, had to be spent within a short period of time. And there were no resources from the local community, or the local county, or, or there even the government itself to to maintain that project.
0: So I'm also thinking of uh, kind of shortened time frames, and I think you've touched on this already in terms of you know the, the use of money for a short period of time. Right. But also maybe the temptation to see a solution as a silver bullet. Do you ever encounter that? where Oh yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs>
1: Uh, and that's, 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 that obviously comes from uh, the outsider perspective. Uh, I, I, re- I mentioned to you that uh, 20% of the projects that we were evaluating did seem to be maintained. Uh, and one of the interesting things that I noticed was the failed projects the, the whole purpose, the whole design, the whole effort of the project was defined and organized by people from Washington, D.C., or Paris, France, or Tokyo, Japan. Uh, outsiders were, were designing and, and thinking of how the project should be funded. Uh, I also noticed that there was almost no uh, willingness to consider the impact of the project uh, on the local culture. Uh, the, the cultural constraints that that exist and, and a, a lack of appreciation for the role of culture in, in making a project succeed. Uh, and so the, the so many of these projects are defined by outsiders and, and they think they have the silver bullet, they think they have the program that's now going to solve the problems but invariably um, this, the, the, I call it the unintended consequence syndrome. It simply is the inability or unwillingness to think outside the box and to consider how this project is being understood, whether it's appropriate, whether it is local culture sensitive, and will it, in fact, solve the problem from from the villager's perspective?
0: I think we see this in education right now with a lot of federal funding that's tied to test scores and then uh, seeing the schools uh, that are discovered to be cheating on the tests and the like. And there's no direct correlation, but I feel like the principles are very similar. Uh, Before I read this book, I didn't know who James Yen was. Can you tell us quickly who he is or was? James
1: Yen. Yes, uh, I met James Yen in 1979, the same year that I did that study uh, uh, on the, the, and learned that most of the projects were not being sustained. Uh, Jimmy Yen, um, a Chinese, uh, he was Christian, uh, his mother was Christian and, and he became a Christian. Um, he um, received his Ph.D. from Yale University in 1904 in political science. Uh, was having a hard time finding a job, and, and couldn't find a job in the United States, and didn't have the resources to go back to China, didn't have a, a return ticket that he could pay for, and uh, so he accepted a job in France. They hired him, they paid his way to France, and his job was to train and be a supervisor over the several thousand Chinese coolies in France, who were digging the trenches uh, that uh, precip- that were created prior to World War One, and he this was his job to essentially manage these uh, these uh, coolies that had been sent to France. Uh, he hadn't been there very long when one of the coolies came to his office and said, "I have been here three years. I've had no co- correspondence with my family in." Uh, in China, would, would you, a uh, great scholar, would you please write a letter to my family in um, in China? Which he did, happy to do so. He wrote a letter. Well, the next night, there were 10 people standing outside of his room saying, I, I can't read or write, and would you would you write a letter? And, and before long, he realized there were several hundred people wanting him to write letters, and realized that they simply could not read or write, and and had no way of communicating with their families. He then, over the course of about a year, developed what he called his simplified Chinese language system. Uh, There's about 55,000 Chinese characters, as I understand. And he developed what he called his 2,000 character system. Just enough of these Chinese characters to write simple letters, and they developed this simple language, Chinese language system. And uh, when he returned to China uh, in 1922, uh, he was invited by the Chinese government to teach his simplified system. And between 1922 and 1937, when the Japanese invaded China, uh, during that 15-year period, he taught 50 million Chinese to read and write in this simplified language system. I returned to China in 1992 and visited the area where he had where he had worked in in that earlier period. And even as late as 1992, there were people in that area that still remembered him and the impact he had had on uh, on their lives. So he's uh, he received the uh, the Copernicus Award in 1944 as being one of the ten most significant men of the first half of the 20th century. And uh, it's been said that Mao Zedong uh, was in fact influenced by that language system and uh, and I remember uh, Dr. Yen saying to me, that was one of my mistakes. <laughs>
0: How
1: influential was a, he, he. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I spent many hour uh, evenings talking about his experiences in rural China. And, uh, and I became absolutely um, fascinated by the way he worked in the villages. You go to the people, you learn from the people, you teach them by doing. And his whole philosophy became very much
0: a part of my own. So if it's okay, uh, let's use that as a springboard for kind of moving into uh, the, this chapter on uh, village community education that was so kind of stunning for me.
1: Um,
0: yes. Can you describe the difference between village community education and a centralized government education? i
1: uh, will be happy to. Uh, let me say that this, uh, this little diagram uh, reflects... Uh, lessons learned over about a 10-year period when we were working in um, countries like the Philippines, we were working in countries in Egypt, we were working uh, then in Mexico and South America, uh, in Bolivia and Guatemala and Central America, a number of places where I had worked, uh, India and Indonesia. And and it, it became apparent to me that the central government system uh, had some specific characteristics that that i found in country after country after country and let me just briefly describe the central government system and then i'll contrast that with the village community education system that uh, that i think has far more positive impact can have far more positive impact the central government system is usually a highly centralized decision-making process. Decisions are made in Cairo. Decisions are made in Manila. Decisions are made in Moscow. Decisions are made in New Delhi. Um, and and the focus is really on preparing a small percentage of the villagers to go on to college. Uh, it's It's like the focus is on teaching children, usually between 6 and 16. Uh, to uh, To enter higher education, uh, and the advantage of course, is that those happy few, those blessed few that do go on to high school and to into college are clearly benefited by the system. but the vast majority, probably eighty ninety percent that never go on to high school or on to college, uh, they in a sense uh, receive very little benefit from the program. And, and it's not that they're not going to school, it's that the curriculum that they're exposed to in that centralized system uh, really has almost nothing to do with preparing people to be effective citizens within a, school, uh, within a, villi- a village environment. Um, the system is teacher-centered uh, with the teacher deciding What's successful learning? Uh, families are usually excluded. In fact, in that centralized system at the village level, parents are oftentimes seen as an obstacle. They're oftentimes seen. Uh, uh, they they alienate the children from their parents by uh, by essentially per- describing them as illiterate and and uh, and um, and incapable of uh, of being. What what the central government is saying people should be uh, they they emphasize uh, in many environments they emphasize this uh, rote memorization the best way to pass the government program the government exams that qualify you to go on to college um, high school or college uh, it's a it's a, a rote memorization process and and I have to admit that um, the The goal really the goal is really to help students to pass exams uh, and and teachers oftentimes are from the dominant culture I remember my first real exposure to that was in Guatemala where I noticed that the Spanish language the the teachers would come from Guatemala City and they would teach the Spanish language and totally ignore the local Indian languages and make fun of the local language in fact sometimes punishing children if they dared to uh, to speak in their their own local Indian language uh, illiteracy was defined as the inability to read and write now these are some of the typical characteristics of that central government system that uh, that certainly characterized too many village systems that I've observed in contrast to that is the what I call the village community education system? Uh, these are much more decentralized, with decisions concerning curriculum coming um, mostly from the community itself. That is, it's the it's the it's the community that identifies what should be in that curriculum, and, and they play a role in defining who should be in that culture. The, the focus is on teaching children uh, to focus on the the 80 or 90 percent who do not go on to high school or to college uh, and and focus on curriculum that prepares them to solve problems and become useful and productive citizens within the context of that village environment. Uh, It's a learner-centered Kind of program in which the curriculum would focus on agriculture. It would focus on 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 primary health care. It would focus on on uh, building some. Um, I guess I would I would say building a, a sense of pride in their local culture, a, a pride in their in their system of of um, their ethnic background, their Indian. Um, their Indian background. Now a lot of people will say, but that's isn't that anti-progress? Why would you focus on the local culture? And I'll tell you the reason why I believe you have to focus on the local culture. Because it's the local culture that provides meaning and purpose and dignity and a sense of identity. And when you separate a person from his culture, from his language and from his system of beliefs and values. You in many ways cripple him or her. And in many ways you destroy that social energy that uh, is, is the key aspect of, uh, of growth, development, and uh, an improved quality of life. Uh, families are encouraged to play a very important role, and, 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 and families, Uh, can sit down with the local teacher and the local uh, even the local Ministry of Education officials in that area and say that in some months when we're harvesting our crops uh, the school needs to be uh, needs to be closed for the the weeks of harvesting and, and whereas the central government might well totally ignore the, the cropping patterns or the the agricultural needs of the community simply saying that if you're in the city you don't worry about cropping schedules and therefore we don't worry about it because the only people we're trying to train are those who are going on to to high school or to college they they won't be farmers anyway. Uh, it's it's interesting to me that uh, what what I like to see in these village community education systems is a realization that we're not simply talking about teaching the three R's. It's not simply the accumulation of facts that help them to pass an exam but village education needs to be a process of transformation Um, and it's transforming the way they look at their community, it transforms the way that they begin to take responsibility for the improvement of their community. It's a process by which villagers gain a sense of dignity, a sense of pride in their local culture and their local systems. And out of that process, it seems to me, comes the energy uh, and the initiative and the sense of responsibility for the improvement of, uh, of life in
0: their village. I'll stop there for just a minute. So it's sort of stunning for me, although I don't think you mentioned it just there was the difference between how girls and women are treated in a traditional education setting and in the village community education.
1: Oh yes, uh, it's clear that in the centralized uh, more tr- uh, traditional village systems uh, it's the it's the boys that are considered uh, important uh, for the education system. Uh, i um, I learned something very interesting. We used to keep track of the number of children attending school as as sort of an indicator of progress in a village community, what percentage of the children are boys, what percentage are girls, and so forth. And um, it was just a few years ago that it dawned on me that when both parents uh, have at least a high school education and are literate, that all of their children go on to school. And when um, the husband has education and the wife doesn't, oftentimes the boys will go to school, but not the girls. And when neither parent have any education, neither the boys nor the girls go to school. And and with that thought in mind, uh, it I began to realize that what we should be measuring are not the number of children going to school. We ought to be measuring the number of villagers, adult villagers, that are illiterate. And we ought to focus on adult education as much as we focus on children education. Because if the mothers are educated, the daughters will go to school. Uh, And that became, uh, again, a paradigm shift in my own thinking as I began to realize that we ought to be spending as much of our resources, educational resources, ensuring that adults are literate. Uh, the, the experience of Kerala in India is a, one of those amazing stories of uh, a, a whole state in India uh, focusing on literacy as the key to the development of their, of their society.
0: So, um, when I interviewed Carol Black on that film I mentioned, Schooling the World, she talked about the difference between being poor in a village and being poor in a city, and how often the, the, the children leave to go to the school. only a small number actually kind of move on, but the rest are kind of ill suited to go back to the village, and, and their lives are not great or, or, or worse. So, I'm interested in how often do the villagers themselves ask for the kind of institutional schooling that wouldn't benefit them just because that's how they've been kind of trained? Um, let
1: me see. I, I'm not sure I understand the question. I'll, uh, say, it, say it again maybe in a different way.
0: OK. So do the villagers ever ask for or want the kind of schooling that's more institutional and would not be as good?
1: Um, would, they, I mean, would they come to the central government kind of schooling?
0: Well, I'm obviously not doing a good job explaining what I'm thinking, but um, if, if the village is making, if you're working with the village leaders to make their own decisions, yes, they, yes. do they ever want the kind of traditional schooling that will actually be worse for their children Uh ah. because that's what they've seen?
1: Ah, that, that, that is a very good question. And, and, uh, and the answer, of course, that um, there will be a tension between the demands for a modern curriculum. Uh, but this, is, this has been my experience. Uh, when it does work, because I, I, I understand what you're saying. And, and a traditional, uh, even uh, some of the more um, uh, extremist kind of um, ideologies that you find in various religious communities, that the, the traditional way of doing schooling uh, see for me that's that's a third model um, the, the, the third model is where you essentially uh, go back to a, a traditional system of education that's like the central government system like the central government system uh, but but it's but it's based on a, a much uh, a, a, a much more primitive, not primitive, because it's not primitive, but much more ideological in its focus, and, and it focuses on uh, on aspects of society that may in fact be detrimental to women and, and girls and de- detrimental
0: to to society. I, that, that think I, I think I actually tripped you up there by using a word that we hadn't used before, which was traditional. And within the vocabulary of education reform here, traditional would mean institutional <laughs> so so I should have said, do they ever ask for the very kind of institutional education that um that, that you describe here as not necessarily being as helpful to them right uh,
1: uh, yeah when i when I think of traditional in the village city, I am talking about for example, in Egypt, they have the they have these places where you would learn to memorize the Quran and the children would sit together and in a mindless way they'd simply memorize hour after hour the the Quran. Uh, th- that for me is a traditional system of education in Egypt uh, and what happened of course is they went from the traditional system in Egypt to a centralized bureaucratic system of education which focuses almost Exclusively on preparing students to pass the government exams that get them into high school and into and into uh, college. Uh, and and what's really frustrating is y- you find that uh, in many of these countries, you'll spend, uh, for example, in, in the United States, the amount of money spent on primary students is. Um, as opposed to the money spent on college students, the ratio is about one to three, if, at least in some statistics I saw a few years ago, so that for every dollar that they would spend on primary school, they will spend three dollars for college education. In many countries in Africa, it's one to 60 or 70. That is, for every dollar that they spend on primary school, they're spending 60, 70 dollars for students in college. And obviously, these college students are are a fraction of the number of children in the country uh, and so the primary children suffer because most of the resources are going for college education so this this middle group between the traditional and and quote the bureaucratic centralized system this village community education system is a system that takes the the non I'm going to say college, the non-college student, potential student, and focuses on their education in terms of being able to make good decisions, to, to learn how to, make, to solve problems, to, to learn how to envision how their village or their community could be improved, uh, to teach them to think critically uh, and rationally in terms of here are our problems uh, here are some potential solutions, and here are the ways that we can make our village better. And 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 to shift from looking at a standard of living to a
0: quality of life.
1: Uh, a standard of living is always defined in monetary terms, but a quality of life refers to more than just financial uh, indicators. It it refers to purpose and meaning and. Uh, and, and uh, uh, satisfaction in life uh, and villagers themselves are very capable of defining and identifying those aspects of life that that bring that sense of purpose and that sense of dignity within their village community. And that's what the village community um, education program tries to focus on. Not going back to the traditional system nor about uh, recognizing that too many times it's the a few elite in the village that goes on for higher education and the vast majority of the villagers um, maintain their poverty and maintain their low standard of living and certainly their very low
0: quality of life. So I got to thinking a lot about social media, Skype, some of these technologies that are significantly increasing communication. And I felt very comfortable with extrapolating those technologies to teachers learning from each other and kind of coordinating. But have you thought about how those technologies could potentially impact students? What about the school in Nepal that set up Skype and is Skyping with kids in the United States? What's a positive way for that kind of interaction to take place?
1: Well, I, I, have, to, I have to acknowledge that there are negative and positive consequences of internet connectivity. Uh, and certainly, unintended consequences that we constantly have to uh, address and, and to be sensitive about. However, I, I recently have been involved with a, an organization. Uh, it's called Concero Connect, C-O-N-C-E-R-O. Cancero Connect. Uh, this, is a, this is a Grameen Foundation social business kind of organization that, that is a, has been created uh, to help put internet cafes into villages at a very uh, cost, of, in a very cost effective way. And we, we're now pre-testing this process in a little village called Estanco in the state of Guanajuato in Mexico. Uh, And we're just beginning to understand and to learn what it means to put internet connection into a village environment. And we've learned a couple of things. One thing we've learned is that, uh, for example, in Mexico, there are internet uh, assignments for students uh, in order to graduate from high school. And if you happen to live in, in an urban area, Internet connections are very easy, and so many many students are able to graduate from high school in urban areas. However, in rural areas, the, it's very very difficult to find access unless you get on a bus and ride three hours to the nearest town, and and, and then do your assignment and and come home. You do that two or three times. Uh, four four five 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 times maybe in a month, and that can be very expensive for a poor family. And in fact, what we're finding, uh, what we found was that prior to putting this connection into the village, very few of the villagers were able to pass that exam, could not afford to go to the nearest town, uh, and therefore simply didn't graduate. Uh, so that, that's kind of a positive aspect of, of internet connection. Uh, but then there's the whole question about training of teachers and And uh, the Minister of Education said to me one of uh, one of the local officials in education said to me that uh, they simply don't have the resources to bring teachers uh, to a central location for training, uh, and they don't have enough of these quality uh, trainers of teachers uh, to, to to fill the need of all the teachers that are working. Uh, and the possibility of having a single master teacher in a, in a town providing ongoing training to 50 village teachers through the internet uh, would seem to me to have a, a marvelous potential for improved uh, teacher uh, competency. Uh, and there's a and there's number of other possible, you know, positive aspects. Uh, we, we see... Uh, students in this little village uh, who are now for the first time uh, having the possibility of, uh, of uh, learning geography and agricultural extension and uh, health services and certainly even educational programs uh, now coming into
0: the village. Yeah, that was one of the first things I thought of as well was uh, the training of health care workers through using the, the, syst- the kind of system we're using right now, the ability to connect. We're not using the video portion here, but I'll turn it on just for a second so you can kind of see how it works. But that, that you know, is very much a, a reality. You, sh- you should be able to see me in a 2nd kind of game-changing um, technology for that kind of training. Hey, uh, I have one final question for you, but before I do, you said you were looking forward to talking about something when we got to the education piece. Have we covered that already, or was there something else? Oh, uh, see, I didn't quite hear I
1: just, I that. Hear that. Was, there,
0: was there something else you wanted to talk about with regard to education? You said you were there was something you wanted to talk about when we got to this place in the conversation. No, I, no, I,
1: think, I think most I think of the things I was hoping to talk about have been, have been covered. I, I did want to say one thing about health education just for a minute, um, we have found that uh, most village health uh, health workers are usually coming from towns and cities and they're sent out into the villages to work uh, and we've, we've discovered uh, after training people in health care they go out into the villages uh, and they won't stay there especially if you if you train 20 year olds to be health care workers As soon as they're trained they might spend a few months in the village but then they go back to the town because they can find a better job now that they've been trained. We have discovered that the key to effective village health worker training is to hire grandmothers, 40-year-old grandmothers who will stay in the village and and we're now trying to develop the curriculum needed to train you know a 30, 40-year-old mother or grandmother uh, who who will stay in the village but can now be trained via uh, some kind of internet training
0: program. Uh, this particular topic and, uh, and one that we haven't really discussed in but that came up in the book about uh, social learning are both being explored by a guy named Sugata Mitra. Have you followed his work at all?
1: I have yes, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not in a position to, to talk about it. But I have heard of him yes.
0: Uh, after we're done, I'll send you an email. And make some connections there because he's addressing both of those. One of which is he's using grandmothers in England to help uh, students in, uh, learn to read through Skype. Uh, fascinating. Oh wonderful! Program.
1: Oh wonderful! Oh, I would love to see that. Yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, he also was the one who put the computers in, in what's called the hole-in-the-wall project. In oh, I've heard, oh, um, heard of that, yeah. I've heard of that, yeah. And, uh, and he put, he's been putting kiosks in different villages and watching uh, with, a, with a video camera and watching students teach each other to use the computer <laughs> and discovering that they're able to learn uh, very effectively without any actual formal instructor. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so my final question, and if there are any questions from the group, please feel free to put them in the chat or raise your hand, but you've talked about families uh, in several different ways here, especially the importance of uh, the family and the parents in terms of uh, helping to precipitate an outcome. How do you help focus on the family when that's probably a significantly harder task?
1: it is a harder task and in fact uh, it's it's maybe an impossible task until
0: they have
1: some level of literacy themselves Uh, and um, and that's why I am convinced that the, the real challenge in villages is not just the training of children well let's put it this way the training of children too often simply means that there's an elite group of children that go on to high school and to and to college and the vast majority of the children in the village are ignored uh, and, and it may be that they're ignored because they're not getting the the encouragement from their family, they're not getting the kind of reinforcement that's needed for them to study hard enough to pass the exams to go on to college uh, and that's why there, there needs to be a balance between children education and, and adult education at the village level It may not be so crucial in cities but uh, in rural areas uh, and the and the reason I say that is because in rural areas the discrimination between the few that go on to college and those that don't go on uh, is is very apparent and it largely stems from this uh, system of education that focuses on only those children that are smart enough or uh, rich enough to afford uh, uh, the kinds of uh, things they uh, the tutors many countries now have these tutors that prepare them for these uh, for these government exams and the rest of the community is ignored both adults and children after they've finished their six years of school or or whatever the Uh, the amount of time is that they spend
0: in the schools. I think that's a great place to stop. Uh, We do have a commitment to our guests that we will finish on time. And, And Jim, I really appreciate you coming. I'm using the clap, the applause emoticon. If I hover over the smiley face and I go down to applause, that's me applauding for you. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, it's been uh, fun to share my ideas with you.
0: Uh, I'm really grateful for the time you spent. Uh, the recording will get posted later tonight or tomorrow, uh, Jim. I'll be sure to send you a link so that you have it. We've been listening to Jim Mayfield talk about village community education and the humanitarian program that uh, he's a part of called Choice Humanitarian. Next week, Doug Rushkoff on Program or Be Programmed. Uh, Very enjoyable guest coming back again. And then Alan Blankstein on scaling excellence in schools. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again, Jim. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are, everybody. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks so much.